You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy's Outdoors 119, and our guest today is the one and only Megan Rowland. Megan is a deer management officer for Nature Scott. Uh, Nature Scott is Scotland's nature agency. Uh, and before that, um, she was a surveyor for RSPB Scotland, uh, where she uh, surveyed all species of highland birds from gulls to eagles, like she says on her website. Um, she still helps with bird ringing. Uh, she's also uh, a volunteer for the Scottish Wildlife Trust and local raptor study group, uh, the Scottish Mink Initiative and the British Red Cross. <laughs> she's also a founding member of uh, Scottish Crofting Federation's Young Crofters. She's a young ambassador for the Highland branch of British Deer Society and a Lantra Scotland Game and Wildlife Industry Champion. Like this is like a very impressive resume. And I'm, I'm really uh, excited that I was able to bring you uh, my conversation with Megan. Uh, without a doubt, she's an expert uh, in land management and deer management. Oh, I forgot to add. Uh, she's also a deer manager, obviously, and hunting guide. So she takes folks out hunting um, uh, for deer. So um, truly, truly expert person. And this is quite impressive, uh, everything that she already achieved. Um, folks, before we uh, go any further with that, uh, I, I want to uh, mention that that this is our private conversation, uh, just, just two friends talking. So... Uh, views and opinions are not reflecting, um, in any way, shape or form, uh, views and opinions of nature, Scott and so on. And we, you know, Megan will do the disclaimer herself during the podcast, but just want to clear this out, knowing that some of the subjects we talk about are quite heated. And obviously, uh, um, you know, uh, I think this needs to be stated. Um, so this is our private conversation, uh, folks. And if you enjoy those private conversations, this, this type of, uh, content, that I'm giving you, producing here, um, please rate the podcast. Five-star rating. You can rate the podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. This is great help uh, for me and for the podcast. And uh, obviously, if you want to uh, go the extra mile and support me personally uh, and my work, you can do so by buying me a coffee uh, because I edit those episodes very early at uh, in the morning. Uh, it's like 5 a.m. in the morning, literally, or late at night, although staying late at night is not healthy. So I'm not trying to not do do that, but sometimes just to bring you an episode, I stay late. So coffee is helpful. So you can buy me a coffee, buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors, the link in the description of the show. Um, big thank you for all of you who already bought me a coffee. And you can also visit Tommy'sOutdoors.com. You can find not only all the episodes of the podcast there, but some other goodies, blogs. Uh, you can buy t-shirts and hats and, uh, you know, other stuff. So visit tommysoutdoors.com, buy me a coffee, leave the five-star rating on Spotify and Apple. And now, without any further delay, uh, deer management and land management with Megan Rowland. 
Megan, welcome to the Tommy's to Tommy's Outdoors. Uh, it's been it's been a while. I was waiting for this podcast. <laughs> I know it's been it's been a wee while. It's uh, been a few months in the planning, but yes, happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that's the most important thing. We're finally here, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, all things deer in Scotland and nature. <laughs> Listen, I know for a fact that many people expecting this podcast and waiting for this podcast and when they read the title it's like yeah i'm gonna listen to this so that what i'm trying to say that many people know who you are you have a very strong social media presence but many people don't know who you are so for those few who don't know who you are would you mind to give you a little bit of introduction who you are what you do and you can also incorporate ever important disclaimer into that introduction that (laughs) You know, everything that I said is my opinion. My <laughs> yeah, I think that might be quite a useful one. So um, uh, yeah, uh, anyone who kind of knows me knows that I've worked as a professional um, Highland deer stalker up in uh, the county of Sutherland. So pretty much the very north of Scotland. Um, so I've done that for coming up for about six years now. Um, but in this last couple of years, I've uh, also started working with... Um, Scottish government as well, part of uh, Nature Scott, which was Scottish Natural Heritage. So, big disclaimer: all opinions and and thoughts are very much my own. Um, and uh, stuff that's kind of not that I imagine there'd be massive deviations in in kind of worldview. But yeah, I feel that's probably one of those things we've got to got to add in for the sake of keeping everybody happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, I worked in land management sector for the last decade now, at least. So um, it's uh, started out doing sort of conservation work, and I've found myself um, kind of oftentimes at the at the end of a rifle. So it's yeah, a bit of a journey, but yeah. quite an interesting one. And and how did you how did you get to do what you do? Because this is like a like you know I have a I have like a privilege of interviewing people who have a dream jobs. So I always have to ask like, how did it happen that you have this dream job? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I started, like I said, working in the conservation sector and, and wanting to kind of go into that line of work and uh, started out doing environmental science and very much kind of following a kind of, I don't know, traditional kind of route into it. I got about 18 months into a university course um, doing environmental science and thought, you know, this is just not not the direction for me, just wasn't the right fit at the time. Um, so thought, right, OK, I will. I'll go and do some volunteering work. I'll, you know, just get experience to find out maybe what I want to do before I uh, commit to anything. Because, you know, you come out of school, you've got no idea really what the workplace is like. So, right, we'll do that. Ended up doing a lot of volunteer work with um, RSPB Scotland, um, with Game Wildlife Conservation Trust, with uh, various various other people doing lots of ecological surveys and that sort of thing. Um, during my time with... RSPB Scotland, my then boss um, took me out deer stalking. And uh, it's just one of those things that just kind of came about. I'd said one morning, oh, quite fancy, quite fancy seeing, you know, the whole process through field to fork, kind of, could I could I do it myself? And he said, okay, well, we'll get that arranged. And uh, went out, um, ended up spending the day on the hill, um, stalked and shot a deer and uh, my little brain went, this is something I could do more. <laughs> <laughs> but at this point, you were, I, I presume that before that, you were you were already 
familiar with the fact with the process of deer stalking and venison and, and not so in the slightest not as like i'm the only person in my family who does any kind of like hunting related stuff at all so um very much kind of out with my sort of family kind of area of expertise um i mean before that i mean i was brought up vegetarian so kind of <laughs> as, as far removed as you could get so um i started eating meat about maybe about a year before that kind of very much homegrown stuff and stuff produced by friends but yeah like i said i wanted to do the field to fork i think if i'm gonna if i'm gonna do eat meat i want to see the process through myself no i could um so yeah it was kind of a kind of journey of discovery on a whole range of <laughs> whole range of ways but quite an interesting quite an interesting way into it really i've kind of had a few interesting educational experiences <laughs> <laughs> when, yes absolutely whenever you're kind of new into something there's always going to be there's going to be one or two of those but no on the whole it's been a really really interesting interesting little adventure how does the deer situation in scotland look like right now like from 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 your point your point of view like is it is, is it good is it bad is it you know overall like a 1000 meters view of a Deer situation <laughs> in Scotland, and then we kind of dive deeper into. Okay, that's a yeah. It's interesting. I think is the way to put it. It's a it's a really. It's certainly keeping me busy at work. I mean, my my role at the moment is um, sort of involved in deer management policy. Um, so you know, we had this review into Scottish deer management a couple of years ago, um, carried out by a sort of committee selected by Scottish government. They then looked at um, all aspects of deer management across Scotland and then made recommendations on how it can change. So part of my work is now kind of being responsible for or being involved in. Um, making some of those recommendations become reality. So that's kind of, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, there's this figure bandied about that there's a million deer in Scotland. Um, I'm kind of skeptical whenever somebody says, yes, this is a definite number. Um, just it's my nature to be, <laughs> to be a little bit cautious when somebody says, this is, this is the, this is the answer. But I suppose for a kind of, in terms of a political kind of sense, it's probably quite useful to have a number to work with. Um, so, I mean, in terms of sort of upland deer management, which is what most people are familiar with, you know, stalking red deer in the highlands, it's had a massive change in terms of how it's carried out and who carries it out and why in the last few years. I mean, historically, it was very much kind of, well, I mean, going right back, you know, that there were a lot of people living in rural areas who were very hungry. So there was a lot of deer, you know, got eaten for that reason. A lot of rural Scotland was then cleared to make way for sheep farming, which meant your rural population disappeared and that pressure, that, you know, human predation pressure disappeared. Um, but the deer were then competing, any deer that were there were competing with sheep. And then over time, as the sheep have removed from the hill, deer numbers have gone up so it's kind of one of those things but then in the last 20 years about in the upland sort of context despite the numbers of deer being high and in some areas they are very high in some areas they are very low so it's kind of quite a mixed picture in recent years despite that kind of grazing pressure from livestock being taken off the numbers have remained pretty static so it's kind of it's quite we've got about sort of in the uplands i think the sort of figures around 400 450,000 sort of deer in the uplands that we know of 
The more interesting bit for me at this point is now looking at the lowland picture, sort of urban edge, farmland, um, agricultural areas. That That's where the sort of interesting bit now is going to start happening in deer management because in the uplands, like it or not, there we have kind of the big estates, big areas with one or two landowners or land managers, um, which means that you can generally get quite a cohesive sort of management objective and management sort of style over quite a big area. Down in the lowlands, that's going to be a really interesting challenge. Um, you know, trying to actually get people to work together, many of whom might not want to have any shooting at all, you know, <laughs> or or might not want to admit how many deer they've got on their land or might not know how many deer they've got on their land. They might be quite surprised they've got deer on their land. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's going to be the really interesting bit now going forward in terms of like my work and in terms of just general picture of deer management across the country. Is the deer management objective set per landowner or per permit because you said like oh we you know we can we can have a cohesive land management on a large area because that area is owned by one uh, you know one landowner so you know in 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 my view that well not in my view but my question is like what what does it matter because if you're setting up a certain you know rules or objective for management I would imagine how I understand uh, deer management is like, or regardless if on that land there's like one or or five or fifty landowners, the management is the same. So how does that work? That that this even matters. So, like I said, in in the uplands, what we've got at the moment um, is our deer management groups. So it's kind of within a kind of. A catchment kind of size area maybe a river catchment size area maybe a little bit smaller depending on kind of the, the scale of land holdings within that so then all the landowners or land managers within that area will sit around a table they'll probably have a few arguments and disagreements because not everyone's going to want to do the same thing you might have someone who wants to do full out blanket cull you know to achieve you know woodland regeneration for a rewilding mission and someone else right next door to them who might want to do traditional upland hill stalking so there's there's lots of different things like that you know on the go somebody else next door to them might want to be kind of in the middle and do a little bit of planting here and a little bit of hill stalking there someone else might want to do you know uh, not want any deer because it competes with their sheep farm you know it's it's kind of that that kind of thing but what we're looking at increasingly is kind of um because we've got this climate crisis and biodiversity crisis is, is kind of improving habitat quality. So whether that's sort of reforestation or um, peatland restoration, they're the kind of two big ones um, just because of the sort of systems they offer across the board in terms of like carbon storage and capture and habitat for other species and water storage and all that sort of good stuff. Um, so it's kind of making sure deer numbers are at a level that doesn't either either stops damaging those areas or doesn't begin to damage those areas so that's kind of the the main thing but then obviously people have got livelihoods they've got staff they've got stalkers and who need to be paid and you know it's kind of a balancing act between making sure you're t ticking those ecological boxes but also making sure that your rural economics stack up you know so yeah it's kind of a it's kind of a balancing act and that's kind of what i'm getting at with in terms of like managing large areas of of land but then if you're kind of 
most deer management groups might have about a maximum of kind of 20 involved parties. If you're down in the lowlands, an equivalent area might have 150. (laughs) So it's kind of, that's the difficulty I think that we're going to face. And do they all need to agree on the, on the, on the call plan or on deer numbers, or is it like one, one can decide they're going to just wipe all the deer on their property and the other one is like, Oh no, I like the deer. You can, you can give it. Ideally, and it does make life so much easier. Uh, they will all kind of come to some really nice agreement where, you know, everybody's aims and objectives are taken into account. There's a bit of compromise and it's all very lovely. And then everybody has a nice sort of, you know, sit down and a cup of tea afterwards. And we all just give each other a big group hug. Yeah, that's the <laughs> ideal. That very often doesn't happen. <laughs> um, and I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of, Deer's one of those things that has become a bit of a proxy for a whole range of kind of big big P political and small P political kind of things, whether it's kind of interpersonal politics or wider kind of land ownership, land use politics. Deer have become a kind of a kind of proxy for a lot of things. So yeah, it's it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting one to, to deal with. <laughs> Was was that a was that the uh, was there an element of kind of disillusionment when you came from you know like oh is it gonna be this lovely deer and wilderness and we're gonna do this cool stuff and then you found yourself at some point in the middle of politics really <laughs> I, that kind of I think that kind of dawned on me like relatively quickly how political it was it's not been like a massive shock to the system. But sometimes it still takes you back, like how political it can be, um, you know, and how much like, yeah, like you think, oh God, it, like, you know, we're dealing with like a pandemic and World War Three and all the rest of this stuff. And like in the global scheme of things, guys, this really doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you have days like that. I'm not going to lie. There are definitely days like that, you know, so it's, but yeah, you kind of have to, you kind of have to push through those days. <laughs> I mean, it's the nature of kind of anything to do with kind of like wildlife management is always going to be pretty political, pretty emotive. Um, you know, people are going to feel pretty strongly about it, whether they're for it or against it, because there's a lot of identity tied up in that stuff. You know, um, you know, we've, we've both on Twitter, we both know, <laughs> you know, a lot of people sort of set their entire kind of brand by their, their worldviews. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Some, sometimes it it feels like this 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 takes precedence over common sense and over like a sometimes even decency. Totally, it's like, exactly. It's like, yeah, I'm 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 gonna carry this flag forward. And <laughs> yeah, exactly, and um, I don't care who who is standing in my way. Exactly. No. So yeah, yeah. I think because I had the kind of had that kind of slightly different coming into the sector. Um, you know, coming at it from a sort of. Air, well, like, like a a moral, ethical kind of food kind of related direction. There was already that kind of kind of arguments and discussions going on in the circle that I was in. Um, but then, yeah, you come into it and you go, "Wow, there really is, there really is a lot of politics going on here." <laughs> yeah, that's I think an unfortunate fact of life, and and especially when you, when you when you talk about land management and land ownership and yeah. Uh, you know, there's money involved in that, and then totally. probably. So, so Megan, would you 
would you agree or disagree? I don't know how to how to frame the question. Uh, how to frame the question so it's not going to come across that loaded question. But I heard <laughs> an, uh, I heard an opinion, right? I, I put it this way. I heard an opinion that overall the welfare of deer in Scotland is really poor because they're there's they're overpopulated. There's so many of them, and they therefore they you, you know because obviously and and this is what how I kind of first time with even I, probably that was even before I started the podcast when I learned that the environmentalists let's call them this way environmentalists in Scotland want to kill all the deer because the forest needs to regenerate and all these because deer eats forest and like and it was like shock to me I didn't know any better it was like wow because environmentalists was usually in my head people who are against killing poor deer Right, and then in Scotland they all want to kill it. You say, "Oh, this is." So I think it was like a first time when I was like, "Oh, there's more, there's more complex, there's more complex issues than than that." Right. Um, so so this is how I get to that, and and then I talk with different people, and and I heard this opinion like, "Oh, there's too many deer in Scotland," which you may elaborate in a second whether you know because I presume there are different opinions on that as well. Yeah. And therefore. The deer others in Scotland, there's poor welfare standards because they're, you know, either don't have enough to eat or they cannot uh, display their natural behaviors. And mm-hmm. da, 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 da. So uh, I'm just curious about your comments because you're, you know, you're very close to this. Mm. I think that there's definitely some areas where that probably is the case, where the you know, numbers have been historically too high. And they've, you know, you, you, you could go to some areas and look, and look at the ground and it's hammered. It's well overgrazed. Whether that's a result of like current deer numbers or historic pressure from like you know sheep, um, sheep that have been on the ground, you know, like intensively grazed for a period of time, and then as they've been taken off, the deer numbers might have come up. The grounds never got a rest, so there's a lot of kind of debate around impact and overgrazing. That's a whole other issue for someone like Kathy, who you've had on here. <laughs> That's her kind of uh, ecology kind of um, area of expertise. But um, no, there's definitely areas where it, it is pretty tired and there are probably too many deer. Um, and that doesn't do them any favours. And I do kind of look at some areas and think, well, yeah, a little bit of woodland here wouldn't actually go amiss. You know, they're kind of, they're woodland, woodland edge animals. You know, they like open space, but they do like having somewhere to curry up out of the worst of the weather you know they're bloody tough but you know maybe they need a break sometimes so i think this this it's why i get kind of a bit grumpy with a lot of this kind of rewilding kind of viewpoint that we need to kill all the deer kind of thing because it's not everybody does i'm not generalizing but you know at the end of the day a bit of woodland will actually benefit this species i also think that the idea that we need to shoot them all in order for the forest to come back, and then all the deer will just wander from the trees, and it'll be wonderful. I also think that's a load of hooey as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have a real issue with simplistic messaging. Mm-hmm. I think there's far too much of it, and it doesn't do anyone any favors. All right, I know, I know another one. Let's let's cut cut loose some wolves. They're going to sort out deers in two. <sighs> two Jesus, weeks, right? don't. <laughs> just don't, don't even go there. <laughs> I know enough people in countries that have got wolves that have got increasing deer populations to know that. The wolves, they do their thing. They'll pick off the odd one or two, but they don't do active habitat reduction. They don't see themselves. They're kind of like more like, I don't know, kind of the bin men of nature. You know, if they get a chance to have something fresh, then cool, they will. But 
at the end of the day, I mean, they don't get to go to the vets if they get hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got to make they've got to if make they live life to three, choices. It's a big exactly. Deal. They've got to make good life choices, and if they get hurt or kicked by a hind, which hurts, you know, anybody who's done any kind of work close at work with deer knows that these animals are seriously strong, even the little ones. You know, um, if you're a, you know a predator, you don't put yourself in the way of harm. So <laughs> the idea that they're going to go out and you know okay, we need to remove however many, you know, say we've got a million deer in Scotland, we need to remove how many hundred thousand? How many bloody wolves would that take and how long? You know, like logically, it just doesn't make any sense. I could just go off on one. I think it's the most ridiculous kind of reason for introducing wolves. By all means say, we want wolves because we think they'll look cool. And, you know, we used to have them here and, you know, whatever. They'll reduce campers in the highlands you know yeah. <laughs> and then cool fine whatever make that argument yeah. but don't don't bring the sort of deer reduction into it i just think that's just yeah i know, I know. no i I'm, I'm i'm glad you're you're kind of elaborated on, <laughs> on this because i i i and it goes to this simplistic views right like someone said like oh we have this many deer and look at the overgrazing and then there's always ones who who types the post or tweet and said like oh introduce wolves right like oh sure that was every time problem every time <laughs> every time <laughs> That was all the problem. Needs more wolves. You're like, it doesn't. It doesn't. They won't solve anything. You've got so many bloody issues before we even get to wolves. Mm. Yeah, I think these are mostly these are people who never seen a wolf and probably never seen a deer and never mind you know how how they interact and you know how does it like 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 you said like you wolf will think twice or three times before they take out like a big massive completely. They and you've got the argument that they'll keep them moving around, you know, that, that they'll, you know, stop them setting an area and being displaced. But that also then means for anybody who is managing them human-wise, I mean, you can see in areas where deer are pushed by, by people, you know, if they're, if they're like, have people out morning, noon and night shooting at them. Mm-hmm. You can see areas where deer are extremely unhappy and they, you know, you get one shot and then they run 40 kilometers. You can't deal with that. that. That's unmanageable at that point. And what you end up getting, I know there's a couple of areas where that was the case in Scotland. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's crazy because, I mean, some areas like, well, you know, you sort of call well-managed herds. You will have your females will heft to an area. And that's about five kilometers. And they stick there. Stags will come to them. Stags roam about, you know, 20 or so kilometers on average. But you know what you're dealing with. And you've got kind of fairly steady, static, calm populations of animals. And like I said, then you've got these other herds that you get maybe one shot at and they're just gone, Um, which is like, that's a nightmare in terms of actually reducing population. If we accept that, okay, maybe wolves do have a role, um, we're still going to need human intervention. Well, if they're moving around all the time because they're freaked out and being chased, then your management stuff's completely out the window. I don't know. I just find the whole kind of, well, they'll solve everything really Yeah, yeah. Bloody no, I, I agree. <laughs> like you like you said like say it like it like, is there's so cool. much more to it yeah, yeah. they're cool it's, it's it'll be cool to have a wolf around and it'll be cool to see them through the binos and so on but yeah. that's not if they um, stop dirty camping in in the sort of you know all around the yeah. tourist hot spots then great <laughs> by all means we said that was the sales reason i would be all for it you know? <laughs> people pooping at the roadside will be getting scared oh, yeah i could go with that you know <laughs> wouldn't mind that <laughs> But, oh, that's a good that's a good one yeah and, no. and do, do we do, do do you know how accurate are the numbers so 
you know, one of the bugbears of mine is like, for example, in Ireland, we don't know how many deers we have. There was no deer census and all that. So how does it look in Scotland? Do, do you do you have like a reliable number? How many deers are in Scotland? Or is it like, you know, is there like a every year census and the number is like, yeah, it's a fairly solid best available science? Or is it like, you know, finger in the air? Like, oh, I think yeah, so <laughs> minus 25%. <laughs> kind of a bit of everything <laughs> you just said i mean we have there's like a rolling program of aerial deer counts so a team will go up in a helicopter um this is like for open range stuff and this is what i'm saying the open range stuff we kind of know what we're dealing with we've got a good handle on you have open space you know what you know you can you can see the deer that's the main kind of key feature you know what you've got you know what you're working with so there'll be a rolling program of deer counting um and uh, a team from, the, you know, some of the guys I work with will go up and spend a few weeks every year flying around. They'll see maybe a group of deer. They take a photo. Um, they can then log it on the map, you know, and then go back and count. Right. OK, that photo ID, they go back and count it when they get back to the office. Right. That we had two stags and 15 hinds in that area. Cool. Right. Next one. So that's kind of the government involvement in the counting process. Estates will also do their own, their own counts. So they'll do, um, you know, like spring recruitment counts, see what's made it through the winter, basically. Um, they then know what they're dealing with. And then after the hinds will have calves, kind of pretty much just before the season, a lot of people will then go out and do sort of another count and get an idea of, you know, how many, how many calves have been born. And you can kind of adjust your figures on what you're going to cull for that year you know if everything's had a calf then you know you maybe need to put a little bit of pressure on if a lot of stuff didn't make it through the previous winter then you might want to hold back again it depends on what you want to do management management wise if you're looking at having a kind of sustainable population for you know for sort of client stalking then you need a certain number of hinds a certain number of stags a certain number of calves you know you kind of to have a, a pretty stable population you're going to shoot 20 stacks you know that, that kind of thing and then those figures will be reported to the deer management group and then the deer management group will then again feedback to government so that might tie in then with um you know, so colleagues of mine will then gather that information back and we can see how that reflects with the the counts that have done you know the, with the helicopters the, there are other methods so like you know done counting and um you know sort of using that as a method of getting an idea of how often you're using a place. And, you know, I think the problem with all kind of census stuff is that it's kind of a snapshot, you know, it's, it's kind of, but a, I mean, it's, it's, you know, snapshot on the day. It's handy. It gives you an idea. Yeah. It sounds to me like it's pretty, but if you've got a North wind blowing for like a week, then any deer that would have been on that north side of the face have cleared off and are sitting in the lee on the south side, which might be the next their neighbor. So one estate might look like they've got nothing and one might might look like they're absolutely swamped. So it's kind of, there's a little bit of... Uh, but then you're talking about, about like a density <laughs> really distribution rather yeah. than the, the, the numbers, but, but exactly. the numbers will always kind of come back fairly... Exactly. Wow, that's, that's interesting. So, so there's the kind of idea that there's a million deer in Scotland. That's the kind of figure that's being used. But I mean... Yeah, how much of that is kind of when we don't really know what we're dealing with in the lowlands across like all of Scotland? That's the bit that's a bit more challenging. What's the what's the percentage with Highland versus Scotland? Which is versus Lowland? About 60, 60, 40, I think, something like that. It's it's over fifty percent are classed as like upland, moorland. Okay, so it's, it's roughly half and half, sixty percent. Yeah, Scot- about upland. that. 
Megan, so you also do like a uh, guiding uh, guiding hunters. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a relaxing relief job after all the politics and after di- all the difficult stuff? Then you go like, ah, oh, I'm just going to do some fun work. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Uh... <laughs> you didn't take you didn't you didn't wonder about the answer no. to that question. <laughs> no. There's a kind of there's a kind of like a simplicity and kind of it's like straightforward honesty about like stalking deer. You know, um you can go out onto the hill and you can't really think about anything else. You're kind of especially if you're gonna do it like do it well and have a good day with the client and give them a good experience, then you've kinda of got to be a hundred percent there. And at the end of the day, I mean, everybody sort of goes, oh, you're using high-powered rifles. That's not very fair. Why don't you do it with sticks and stones? But you think, well, (laughs) it's just nonsense, (laughs) which is just freaking nonsense. But (laughs) I I just, I just, uh, you know, like at this point, the the term high-powered rifles, like like, what what would you expect? Would you expect them shooting them with 22? (laughs) You know, it goes to that point that I think that these days, like anyone who wants to, you know, uh, stress that something is bad and they're going to use this high power. There's like, oh, they're using high powered boats when it comes to fishing. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah. What? So what do you mean? Like turbine <laughs> engine boats or like, what are the high powered boats? But, and then high powered boats. Like, okay. So, <laughs> you well, know, okay. Like, to me, yeah. to me, if you're actually out and you're using a high powered, you know, rifle or bow or something like that to hunt, then actually your chances of, being successful are that much better because you're you know it comes there comes a point where that would be absurd and you're using a cannon but you know it's kind of <laughs> that's my point know, right <laughs> but but you know it's kind of within the realms of the like, common sense um you know actually me me using the best tools for the job kind of means that it's probably going to be a quicker cleaner more effective operational round Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that's a similar thing, like with the wolves. That people who are using yeah. this argument of high-powered rifle, they they they, uh, they didn't spend minute thinking about what does it actually mean. Mm-hmm. It's just a term. They just heard a term. Is, yeah, it's meant to mean it. something, and they just like slap it. And like, My favorite other one is trained marksman. Deer shall only be shot by trained marksman. Yes, right. <laughs> Thank you. Trained, yes, exa- exactly. They should go through the, go through the military school. marine sniper school before they shoot the deer. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. No, that's not a guarantee that anyone is going to have any idea. I mean, it's like this, like, oh, I just, yeah, it's my head in. There's like a lot of guys we have out who do, you know, they might do a lot of target shooting and they can hit a target at 100 meters, 200 meters and 300 meters. Isn't that great? And then you put a live animal in front of them and they turn into jelly and they just can't, mm-hmm. they can't buck even. Buck fever. Buck fever. Exactly. It's got a name for God's sake. It's well known, <laughs> you know, and these are guys who might be like professional kind of people who've, who've been in the army and all the rest of it doesn't, there's no guarantee that they're actually going to do. Yeah, I mean, but even like this this trained marksman thing is 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 like you know saying like oh everybody who gets into a car needs to be trained race car driver like like no you're not ex- you're not expecting someone to go to like two year driving course when they you know learn to corner and do all these things to get into the car right you go you, you just and the same thing like why would you go through the trained marksman course if you want to shoot a deer like exactly you know, like, like, exactly. So, 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 so let's talk about deer stalking, like a more relaxing subject. And yeah, definitely. Um, any advice? So, someone, someone like me, or you know, who kind of 
hunts deer where they whatever way they live you know ireland or maybe in 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 uk but not in scotland or maybe somewhere in europe and they want to go to scotland shoot a deer in the highlands which is this big so what advice would you give that person like where to start how to you know like let's go from the very basic side like how to start how to find a place where to go when to go you know how to prepare (laughs) okay I mean, where to start? Where to start? <laughs> yeah, big, big question. I suppose. I mean, if you're st- wanting to start doing stuff like recreationally yourself, we're a kind of disadvantage to our kind of American counterparts in that we don't really have any access to public land. So you know, whereas a lot of folks there can you know get a license or put in for a tag or whatever, and then just head out into the hills, um, into public land areas, and you know shoot their shot kind of thing. We don't have that same opportunity so a lot of people will get their first taste of deer stalking through um you know either being like fortunate like i was to go out with a friend um or to uh they might have to you know buy stalking or kind of you know there's various auctions people can bid in when a day deer stalking somewhere and you know it'll be something like that that people get their first kind of opportunity but it's usually kind of something they've got to pay for generally um I mean, everybody gets really excited about stalking stags in the Highlands, in the rut. That's kind of like seen as kind of the primo stalking experience. And it is. In the global context, I've had guys that say it was it was Scotland or Alaska and we came here and it's been amazing. You know, it's, it's kind of, yeah, when it's done well, it's an amazing experience. Um, but in terms of actually like going out and just stalking a deer, then I think... Or, you know, whether, whether you want to actually stalk or sit in a high seat, you know, because, I mean, some people... No, but I even mean from the from the perspective, you know, like, uh, probably going with the, with the outfitter or with, yeah. you know, like, whatever the term is, yeah. is, the, is the way to go for the first time, yeah. right? You, pretty much. You, that's you, pretty you, much what people have to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, you know, in terms of, like, your experience before that, I mean, most people... Well, you know, they, they've got a range of people who come, people who've never shot anything before in their life, not even shot at a target, to people who've shot, you know, multiple deer. It's just kind of, I think as long as you kind of a willingness to learn and you made some edu- effort to educate yourself before you go, then that's kind of a good thing. Um, it's just good form, really, actually. <laughs> Regardless of what you're doing, you don't want to go in completely, like, completely novice. Um, and then... Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, everybody gets excited about the Red Stag experience. But to be honest, I mean, I find like going down to England and sort of, you know, stalking muntjacks really interesting and exciting because it's something totally different to what I do up here. Um, you know, winter rose stalking for does. I mean, again, if you're looking at sort of like not spending an absolute bloody fortune to go and do it, mm-hmm. there's there's quite a few options. I mean, people would spend more on a season ticket to go and watch football you know <laughs> it is seen as quite an elite a sort of elite activity because people see one particular kind of you know um the landed gentry going out and stalking stags but actually there's a lot of options out there and it's kind of yeah it'd be quite good for people to be more aware of that and actually in terms of like we get a lot of guys who come up to scotland to go and stalk deer and and you're kind of like yeah but you know we're going to help you out with the scottish hind cull and we're kind of like yeah but You've got so many fallow does down in England. It's actually shocking. <laughs> Why are you coming up here? We should be going down and helping you sometimes. I'm like, oh my god. You know, that's, it's that's um, it's kind of interesting, like the perception around like 
Scottish versus English deer management as well. I think that's kind of just as an aside, completely quite an interesting kind of mm-hmm. interesting one. But um, yeah, yeah, it's like I said, we're we're at a disadvantage and we don't have that access to public land. What is what is the like how how much money are you talking about when you when someone wants to go for you know deer stalking holidays to Scotland? Mm. It, to be honest, it really depends on the place. I mean, there's a few places that you know if you're wanting to shoot kind of like trophy animals. Um, then yeah you can you can be charged a fortune and that's the same anywhere in the world mm-hmm. yep you know and there's always going to be people that have got money spent that's just the way of it mm-hmm. so you might you know i don't know someone might pet spend a thousand pounds to shoot a really nice stag but then for you know a week's hind stalking um they might spend 500 pounds for a whole week so it's that kind of difference in experience it just depends on where you are and what you're doing or some places will charge a day rate, and some people charge a week. It's you know, it's kind of it depends on the outfit. Right? It just depends on the outfit and and the people they work with. So there's kind of no hard and fast rule. And I think the main thing is kind of shop around, <laughs> and sort of it is one of those sectors that's there's a lot of like reputation and kind of things. So you know, it's always worth actually shopping around and just asking about because you know it's just the nature of these things. And asking people who already wear with. Uh... Exactly. You know, done that before exactly. and like what was exactly. the experience? Totally. What is the time of the year? What is the best time of the year? I mean, in Scotland, roe deer are in season all year round, either males or females. So, oh, really? Yep. Yeah, so there's always you can always stalk one or the other. Um, so uh, bucks start on the first of April and does finish on the thirty first. So it's kind of you know you can basically have from one season to the other. Folks like the the challenge of hind stalking, you know, because the weather is just that much, can be that much more inclement. <laughs> Although if it's like really, really bad, we won't go out because you get guys turning up saying, well, I've got all the gear, let's let's go. And it's absolutely lashing rain and blowing a gale and snow and sleet. And like, well, let's go out then, we're here. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but it's no good for the deer to be chasing them around, you know? And like, yeah, but I've got all my waterproof kit on. And I say, well, okay, you strip down to your boxers and then we'll go out. Oh, I'm not doing that. Well, that's what, that's what you're asking the deer to do. They don't have an option, you know? So it's kind of, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's definitely a more challenging time of year. Um, for pure excitement, like I said, the red deer rut is, is quite something. You know, there's, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you get the chance to go somewhere where the, you've got the stags roaring all around you and you can watch them chasing and holding hinds and that is exciting. Um, so that's kind middle, of September, October. September. Yeah. September, October time. Um, and if you want a bit of a challenge and you aren't bothered about, you know, taking home the, the skull and the antlers, then um, some guys will go stalking in summer, you know, sort of um, in, in August where they still got velvet on their antlers. Um, just for the, and that's when the stags are at their best sort of meat quality. It's kind of July, August. So, oh, really? Well, that's, a, yeah. that's an important, that's yeah, an important For those who like, for, for, for whom the real trophy is the meat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So um, you have a you have a less, better weather and better meat. What's yeah, what you like? Exactly, exactly. Well, once they get into the rut, they get pretty, pretty gamey. Yeah, <laughs> just the all, the, all the hormones and everything. Totally, goes, mm, totally. Yeah. Um, so apparently, there's quite a sort of strong German market for um, rutting stags. That's that's where apparently a lot of stuff goes because it because a lot of it goes into sort of cured sausages and things. So the strong taste is not a bad thing. Apparently, so I'm reliably informed. All right, <laughs> it's not anything wrong with the meat. It's just a very strong taste, and I think mm-hmm. for the sort of 
sort of quite sort of tame, often tame British palate. It's probably a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know, like, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is some, uh, I don't remember who said it, but someone said it like, you, you know, you go in, you weather the elements, you weather this, you do this, you... You grab the deer and, they, and then you cannot eat because you're, you know, you're selling taste, right? Like, come on, you can weather. There's a little bit of a game you need. But I, I totally, I totally agree. I, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, I just <laughs> physically cannot imagine of, you know, having shot an animal and processed the animal and then I taste it. It's like, oh, it doesn't taste like, it's a protein. I know. I know. So, so okay, so so we got the, and usually for the for the traveling hunters, are they bringing their own rifles with them from wherever they travel, or is it option to get the rifle, uh, you know, whenever they go, or is it depending? Pretty much every estate I know um, will have people use their rifle. You know, I mean, like we have clients that will turn up and you know they maybe want to use their own rifle, and that's fine. Um, but we're I mean we're now using non lead ammunition. Um, just because of the kind of management contract that the estate was on. Um, and a lot of guys who've got, like, say, forestry contracts, they're on non-lead, and an increasing number of people are switching to it. And, uh, you know, that's... Yeah, it is what it is. It does the job. But if you're kind of obliged to do that because you're a contract, you can't really then have people turn up with, you know, shooting lead from their own rifles. So. Yeah, but this is just an ammunition. But, but yeah. I, I'm saying... So, but yeah, guys can they can take their own rifle as long as they're kind of happy to shoot non-lead ammunition, um, you know. But I mean, to be honest, it is just a lot easier to to use the state rifles. You don't have but to. That's worry my about point. It. Yeah, it's just a, way easier just to come over just yourselves. Bit of outdoor kit and there's not there's have to always about it. You know, there's always like a little bit like with when you when you go in like whether you're going hunting or fishing. There's these things like on one hand you would like to use your own rifle, your own rod, but on the other hand. Especially when you're traveling by air or something, totally. you know, all the all the permissions, everything, and then this is not exactly a piece of gear that is easy to handle. Exactly. Uh, so it it might be okay. So you know, my my question was more aimed at yeah. you know whether the the gun laws in Scotland even allow such. Yeah, no, you've got to have a sponsor. I think you've got to have someone who can sort of sponsor you to come to say, you know, yes, you are, you know, you're a client, you're safe, you've got. But I mean, that's something like your agent would sort out if you book through an agent. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So when you're going through the outfit or yeah. agent, then that's that's they'll advise on what needs to happen. So, mm-hmm, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, but genuinely, I mean, if I travel anywhere, I'll just use the rifles over there. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah that's it's just, easier. It's just so much easier and less less stressful. True, true, <laughs> especially in the travel. Yeah, exactly. Um, listen, how how does the aspect of the physical fitness look like? How do you do you often faced with a situation when you have a clients that are just like all right we're going to go up that hill and they go like what <laughs> uh from time to time i mean you you adjust your you adjust your stalking to suit i mean you know it's it's kind of um again that's the advantage of having like sort of like say kind of well-managed here you kind of know where they're hefted to you know where you've got options basically you're not reliant on walking around till something happens to kind of stand still in front of you long enough um so i mean we had a an older guy out um this last season 
and uh, he went out with a colleague who marched him over hill and dale because he was like, I have a sore knee. And our colleague was like, yeah, well, I've got I've got a, I had an ankle operation. So, you know, that's fine. We'll all the old guys will go out together and uh, marched him around the place. And this old guy was just absolutely knackered. He could barely function. Um, <laughs> so he came out with me the next day. He was like, I want to have an easy day. So we managed to find him a stag. It was like, you know, sort of. 2000 steps or something on the sort of pedometer you know it was like as opposed to like sort of 25,000 you know it was kind of right okay and he was like that wasn't long enough I would like a longer day (laughs) right okay so eventually I managed to get quite a nice sort of technical kind of stalk and managed to work around a whole heap of deer and got close to some others and yeah it was a really good day and we got back to the car and I was like looked at my watch because uh, he was like oh i'm so tired and i was like oh seven two and steps yeah it's fine <laughs> and he was like, he's like oh okay that was kind of in the middle i said yeah it was <laughs> jeez i don't i didn't even yeah i getting like when you're like this is a fun thing that when you talk with uh with the guides whether fishing guides or hunting guides the t- type of stories and the type of like people you deal with <laughs> <laughs> like oh that was too long no 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 that was too short like I know. Just like, just like in the we middle. want the goldilocks day you know, <laughs> everything is just right like you're hunting you're hunting it right. doesn't work like that it really doesn't and so is is are these situations where you just have to go uh, in you know so i i'm i'm just i'm just wondering like how much this is that dictated with like what you, you do what you have to do and how much this is dictated of like oh you know this guy wants to challenge and want to, you know, hike up and down the hills. And this guy just, you know, want to go and squeeze one. And you like, yeah. how, how, wh- wh- how does that work? I mean, at the end of the day, like the main thing to keep in mind is we are there to do a job. You know, we have, we were there to reduce numbers. So that's kind of got to be the primary objective. You still then want to have a good day for the client. So they, they feel like they've been part of the process, not just like dragged around. Um, <laughs> which is like the worst side of things when you sort of like stomp around after a guide. They don't really speak to you all day. You get plopped down behind a rifle, take a shot, mm-hmm. you know, and you just, all you've done is like kind of wander around, press a button and go home, mm-hmm. you know? So it's kind of, it's got to be all that kind of feedback into, into the day. Um, unfortunately, it is one of those things where you do get people who just want to go and shoot stuff. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, they are very few and far between. They often come up for the hind season because they think they're just going to get a chance to like rattle away and shoot a heap of things, um, which is kind of not great. And we've had, I mean, in the sort of six years, I've had maybe two people like that, you know. And yeah, they're just dicks. <laughs> very frankly, they're just, you know, they're assholes. Um, but they exist in every, unfortunately, exist in every sector of society. So, you know, they're going to be there. They're going to crop up from time to time. But no, I mean, you know, it, it's, like I said, you can tailor the data suit suit the client and what kind of they're looking for. Um, and, you know, you, there's a certain degree of kind of, yeah, there's a certain degree of maneuverability in what you can do and when and how. Um, but there's also, also going to be days when it just doesn't work out. And we'd rather kind of, walk away from it at that point and try again tomorrow than try and like hash on to the hours of darkness, you know, for the <laughs> sake of, for the sake of like, we're going to do it. And, and everybody just leaves disappointed and tired and cold. You think, right. Okay. about to call it quits. We'll, we'll have another go. Um, but you know, but I guess like minus the injuries 
and you know age old mm. age and all that yeah you know is there just to have a good experience just to have a yeah. you know like a fun day um and you know when you need to hike up a hill you're gonna hike yeah. up a hill and so on yeah. is the you know like a average you know hunter fitness level of the average hunter yeah. enough for that or would you say like definitely you know get on the treadmill or get onto the gym yeah you know six months before to have an optimal experience so this is what i'm kind of i think if you're kind of going kind of west coast stalking in particular which is like a lot of vertical ground then being a little bit fit is not the worst thing in the world <laughs> um, you know get on the get on the step counter kind of thing um but and and just you know you'll you'll have a better day yourself if you're not absolutely knackered um i mean there is a part of it that you know the guiding experience when you have like i said you you take account of what your client is obviously capable of doing or not and adjust to suit because you know the worst thing in the world is is following a guide who like and a lot of the young guys do this because i don't know if they're kind of not interested or maybe nervous about speaking to folks but we'll we'll absolutely race off up the hill and they've got a guy in their in his 60s sort of puffing away trying to keep up with them you know <laughs> kind of uh you know who's who's the, who just wants to have a good time at the end of the day i mean you're there to enjoy ourselves i've got a, a an older friend he's in his 70s he still comes out in gillies and uh he says that to me because we we're, we're going to go out one time and it started to rain he says to be honest, he says, I'm here to enjoy myself these days. <laughs> you know, I don't feel the need to get cold and miserable anymore. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's kind of, you've got to view it to, to a certain extent. You know, I can get cold and miserable, but if I don't have to, then I really don't want to. It's the same with the fitness. You know, if I don't have to be knackered, <laughs> mm -hmm. then I'll, I'll do everything I can not to be. So, yeah, I think a little bit of prep does no harm. But at the same time, there's an element of the guide's got to actually sort of gotcha. not so just like around good shape yeah. but you'd not necessarily need to run 100 miles in the mountains no god no nothing like that you can if you want i mean no one will think any of the worse of you for it but um yeah just you know as long as you can well, get I, like, without... like if my very first stalking experience when i didn't know like literally the first time i call up the guy the you know like the 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 gentleman who runs a fishing lodge he actually turned out to to know the guy who who you know is guiding hunters and i said hey can you you know it was like a few years ago and uh he ring him up and the guy was like in his 70s and the first question he asked like oh is he fit <laughs> because, <laughs> because he was even though he was in the 70s he was so yeah. fit and he was so you know yeah. so he didn't want somebody like dragging behind him it was like a first question <laughs> yeah so, but like no. I said, yeah, it, it's it's good to know that this is not sort of a, it's not you know, hunt that you need club. to do it before no. you get too old for it. No, 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 totally. And like I said, there's lots of different options for different people and different skills and different abilities. I mean, like you know, if you're happy to have an experience where you want to, you know, sit in a high seat, you know, and sit and watch what's going on around you, because I mean, you know, I mean, I like obviously stalk hunting, um, but for me, like sitting in a high seat like down south is a really nice experience because it's somewhere totally different um looking at different species i mean like mont jack and fallow for example you get to see them moving through the wood and a whole range of other things so yeah it's and you don't have to be massively physically fit for that obviously um so yeah there's lots of options and i think it's like not to sort of cut yourself off from it because you feel you might not be able to i think that's one of the important things like and getting new people in you know it's kind of a i think it's easy looking at the sort of 
mountain man Instagram to think that everybody's got to be some sort of like ex Navy SEAL to try and sort of like go <laughs> go hunting in the mountains, but carry the deer off on your shoulders kind of thing. Yes. Yes, does it count? Otherwise, it doesn't count. No, exactly. It's a kind of like weirdly elitist kind of thing with some of it, but no, you don't need any of that stuff. You know, it's quite possible to have quite a good experience and a nice day and an educational time. Yeah. I like that that, that you just said. It's it's, it's probably, you know, the the major part of the experience is is to talk to your guide. You know, like I said, not just follow steps. It's like, here, now, shoot this one. And done <laughs> go yeah. back home exactly it's, it's it's all the it's all the banter and totally. all the things that you've learned while you're in yeah. the process i mean if i take my like clients out i'll let them know why we're looking for this stack you know what are we looking for when we look at a stack we've seen 10 stags this morning why this one you know what what is the characteristics here that we're looking for in him is it you know age profile or antler shape or you know body quality or you know all these sort of things and then you're discussing, you know, how he fits in with the herd and his role and the females and the calves and you know what you're choosing to do with the land. And there's, there's so much to it. And I think, like I said, it, you know, a good guide will kind of involve you in that process because, you know, you're there for the you're there for the day, you know, or a week. You know, you want something out of it. So is there a big issue to bring the, the meat with you then outside of? Uh, into the EU because now you need to bring them. Yeah, I think it's more of an issue now that it's, now that we've uh, we've done the Brexit thing. Um, that definitely, I think, makes things harder. Um, there's probably lots of forms to fill out. <laughs> yeah, but it was like a tip- typical like people were bringing meat with them. Yeah, some people would. Yeah, some people would. Um, you know, either like buy it locally or you know whatever. Um, it sort of speak to the game dealer and take stuff. Um, or or get it sent out sort of thing so that's that's been done before but i yeah i think brexit's made all that stuff way harder um it's probably like 17 forms to fill in and various colors of ink you know, well, you know worse comes to ours you just you just stay put until you eat the whole deer and then you go back and then you go home weighing an extra three stone but very happy with your stone. <laughs> there you go i have my all my deer on how me is your, how is your whole how is your holiday great you had to roll me out the door oh <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, this is this is vacant is there anything else uh, to be stalker in, in you know someone who wants to go on shooting holidays into is there anything else that I didn't ask you but they need to know about I don't think so I think it was kind of the main basics was kind of you know like educate yourself first get you know a little bit of fitness but don't be put off by uh, by any of the kind of preconceived notions of what it means to go you know on a stalking holiday and shop around you know at the end of the day it's like anything. You wouldn't just pick the first holiday that you know the travel agent gives you. <laughs> that's a that's a main takeaway. No, <laughs> it's 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 uh, you know I actually thought uh, before I, I I was talking with you that the you know physical aspect is more important that you yeah. you know need to be really you know yeah. up to the job of hiking up and down the hills. But yeah. uh, you know you kind of like it was you were reassuring in that. The thing is, is like there's different areas of Scotland that I mean, like here it's it's very flat. And a lot of blanket bog so it's not so much vertical hunting um where you're walking and stalking kind of thing or walking up lots of hills um but you know the final approach might be 200 yards of crawling like belly crawling through a wet peat bog so it's kind of you know it depends on what experience you want um we had a guy turn up with his son 
<laughs> and uh, he went stalking with a with a colleague, and they spotted the stag, stalked in as close as they could get whilst walking upright. And uh, and then I think the sun was going to shoot, and the dad was going to then crawl in behind and sort of like be there for the moment kind of thing once they were all set up. And uh, my colleague said to them, right, we're going to, we're going to crawl forward. Now we're going to crawl hands and knees. And then when I belly crawl, you belly crawl behind me in a line, single file, the whole thing. And the guy's like looking at him going, that's a really long way. And he's like, yeah. He said, I'm in the Navy. And he's like, yeah. He said, I didn't join the army. So I didn't have to do things like this. (laughs) 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 That's really funny. But yeah, they did it and they got, soaking wet and were delighted with themselves and it was all very nice but yeah yeah so it's different experiences for different different places what are the the um average shot that you're taking is it 200 yards 300 yards ideally ideally 100 meters that's kind of like the the ideal um but i mean uh, between 100 and 200 which kind of anything okay, within that so, range is so considered again, kind of all right. You're not taking like a miraculous no, yard shots or no. And anybody like who sort of says that you know you should be taking shots like that isn't worth the time of day. Quite honestly, I mean, I've I've heard a couple of sort of horror stories of people being put in that situation. It's like their first stag and you know shooting a deer at sort of like you know 400 meters, and it, that's just horrible, you know, because they're under pressure. And then something goes wrong, and if it's wounded, then it buggers off. Then they've got to chase it up, and it's that's whereas at least like. Because I've, you know, I've got a couple of friends who've started stalking, and we're talking about this. And I said that at the end of the day, if you start as close as you can, if anything goes wrong, and not saying it will, but if anything does go wrong, you've maximised your distance that you've got to safely shoot out to and comfortably shoot out to. If you start at like two hundred, and it runs out to four, then you've got a big issue. If it starts at hundred and it runs out to two, then you've got a lot of leeway. If you start at 400 and it runs off, then you're, com- it's half a kilometer away by that point, you know? So it's, um, yeah. And many people don't even, don't even take shots, you know, this long, you know, I mean, like, exactly. un- unless you're in some sort of a long range shooting league or something, then you exactly. know, you, you, you probably, there's no you know. need for that sort of stuff really. So it's not like, a, uh, you know, you're de- debunking some, some things for me even, uh, because my, my, uh, imagination was, uh, you know, that is, it's, it's much more demanding physically and, you know, you're probably going to be taking longer shots than, but you say, you know, hundred meters is, it's pretty much, you know, for most what, people I know who are taking clients out, you know, hundred, 150 is kind of, where it's at if you've got a client out you know and it's i mean it's it's stalking at the end of the day the whole point is to get close to the animal otherwise it's just kind of throwing bullets and hoping some of the ants you know <laughs> it's uh so yeah it's um i mean it's not to say like you shouldn't be fit and you shouldn't have a bit of practice before you go and all that sort of stuff but um yeah i, I wouldn't let it stop me from like going on a stalking holiday whether that's like i said upland red deer or you know, lowland fallow. You're maximizing your chances and, and you're getting yeah. better experience in the end. Listen, exactly. um, just to, just to, uh, one, one other subject that I, I'm sure, I'm sure you're <laughs> going to love it. Uh, but I have to, I just have to, I have to. Rewilding the R world, world, yep. you know, how the whole movement and how the whole, you know, thing, because it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of people talking about it and this is like a thing that, that's, it's the thing that's now right, and everybody have their own idea of what rewilding is, and and so yeah. on. Like, how these conversations, you know, impacting your work 
you know, either you work in terms of deer management yeah. uh, or even, you know, maybe as a, as a hunting guide, I don't know if, it, if, if they do, if they don't. So just, I'm just curious, like, how does it look like from the perspective where you, where you sit and, and, and also what are your, you know, views on it? <laughs> um, I think rewilding is one of those things that you could put, you know, like 10 people in a room and say, what's your opinion? And you'll have 20 opinions. Whereas <laughs> it's kind of, um, the, there are so many different views. I think like, like I said earlier, I kind of, I don't object to some of the fundamental principles, like sort of the idea of like self-willed land to a, you know, to a certain extent and, and a little bit of more woodland cover in a lot of places wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, you know? Um, and just in terms of species benefit, you know, as well as all the other stuff. Um, so I'm kind of, in principle, not hostile to the to the idea and to where it's what it's trying to achieve. Um, I think my kind of reservations on it come from being someone living and working in a rural area, <laughs> and so you get some of the purists who kind of get the feeling that there shouldn't be anybody living and working in rural areas. You know, <laughs> like they just shouldn't be there. It should be just left to go back to, to nature, um, which is nice, but not going to happen. Um, so I think there's got to be a kind of a bit of realism about the discussions. And I, I think a lot of the unhappiness from the rural sector comes from that kind of uh, sort of it, whether it's meant as an attack or, or it's just perceived as an attack on their sort of identity and their, you know, a lot of people say, first and foremost, yeah, I'm a hunter, I'm a farmer, I'm a whatever. You know, there's identity tied up into that stuff. And I think like people who are coming in saying, what you're doing is shit and you're trashing the landscape and this way is the best way, basically devalues what people have worked for, their families have worked for and their communities have worked for for generations. So it's... Yeah, I can understand a lot of the unhappiness and uneasiness that surrounding it, um, despite some of the potential benefits that come from it. So, like I said, not not hostile to the idea, but it's got to be done in a way that's like sympathetic to folks who are already here. <laughs> um, it's almost like a term itself is tainted. It's totally. it's almost like like totally. you know like mm. my point was like maybe we you know like stop using word rewilding because like first mm -hmm. of all people don't you know people understand different things. Yeah. And there's always like, oh, but there's like, you know, corridors and predators and whatever. Like, okay, that's exactly. fine. But uh, obviously carnivores and, and corridors and whatever. Um, but, you know, like you said, like, what are the principles? Like, what are we trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. Why we why we need to put this this label yeah. that, that makes people agitated, right? Yeah, it's like, exactly. oh, trophy hunting. Like, yeah. you know, like, stop using it. Like, why, exactly. you, why, you, why you insist of using it, right? It's like, exactly. oh, I'm a vegan. Like, Oh, but oh, you're this like right? If you if you just eat whatever you want to eat, nobody cares. But then yeah. you put this label on, and some people get sudden, agitated about it. And I think that with rewilding is the same thing. And yeah. I think it's a it's a it's a great pity that well, at least where I sit, like people that I know and I you know respect their their points of view greatly. They insist of like, oh, we need to use this word while they like, you know, like maybe, maybe <laughs> it's better just not use the word. Yeah. You know, or because find it, sort of ways for the terms that you're, because I think like rewilding, like I said, for some people, it means large carnivores. For some people, it means, you know, bison behind the fence. For some people, it means beavers in every stream. For others, it means a little bit of woodland 
on sort of woodland soils, you know, and kind of encouraging that. So it's a really kind of broad church. I don't, I don't know whether there's a sort of like mix of sort of folks saying, well, mine is the only true definition of rewilding, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it's like any kind of like belief system. You're always going to have schisms you know, and splits and people are going to go off and do their own thing. Um, and I think maybe like picking bits out of like that, you know, for some of the things that you want to achieve might be a better way to do it rather than just leaving everything as like blanket rewilding. I think that some of the principles are good. I think the sort of PR campaign has been great for the general public, but pretty toxic for a lot of people who work rurally. And if you're going to have anything that takes part in rural areas, you're going to, unless you're planning a sort of, you know, extermination campaign, <laughs> which wouldn't really go down very well, um, you know, you kind of need to take rural people with you. Because they're a lot of the ones, I've had this discussion with people like through work and, you know, taking it quite a long way when I've said it that, okay, we've got a biodiversity crisis and you want to have, you know, tree planting and peatlands and all this stuff. Well, the people you need on your side are the guys and girls who are, you know, shooting the deer, managing the deer. Excluding them or pretending that you can do it without them isn't going to benefit anybody. And actually making sure that they're, you know, well looked after, well supported and, and paid a decent wage might actually be the way to ensure that you get a lot of these things done, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Um, whereas, uh, you know, I know a lot of like young folks in the sector, in the deer management sector in particular, find it bloody hard to find year on year employment because a lot of it's sort of contract work for a season and then you're kind of left kicking your heels. Um, or there's kind of, you know, some of the places could be, you know, whether it's an estate or a company can be a bit exploitative. Same with conservation, to be fair. There's, you know, kind of piss poor wages in that sector as well. But if we're going to have people coming in and we know like how much of an issue it is keeping people employed rurally, whether it's in agriculture or fruit picking or whatever, (laughs) you know, we need to make sure these jobs are valued. And I think that's kind of my thing with rewilding is, is, you know, a lot of the stuff they actually want to achieve, especially if they want to reduce deer numbers to allow this stuff to happen. You need folks to do it and there needs to be collaboration for it to happen. When I talk with people who are really seriously deep into rewilding, they're in nine cases out of 10, they're talking reasonable things and they appreciate, you know, need to, for rural people. And, and I think that where the, um, the problem is that these organizations kind of, well, they, they need finance, they need people, yeah. they need members and so on. And then their messaging to, to, to support yeah. kind of tends to recruit people of like, oh, hunting is bad and, you know. Hunting is bad, we need wolves. To... Yeah. And, and I think that this is a huge problem that where a lot of environmental NGOs um, haven't dealt with, that they're kind of supported by the, people who are not 100% and then they they seems like they cannot even say the things that they want to say because then some of their members will feel you know like a betrayed disenfranchised and this creates like it like a not healthy connection between the totally totally i don't know what the answer is to that to be honest because it's like it's almost reached that point where you can see that in the sort of political process as much as anything else or any you know like globally you know the sort of like to use the phrase but the fake news phenomenon and all that side of things that kind of you know it it's it is a very real thing where you know folks are self-selecting their own media you know and and companies and ngos and whoever 
um, very much tailor it to suit based on what response they might get on social media. It's really weird. I don't know at what point that switch was, but it's not a massively healthy one. I mean, like, you know, we both chat with people who are involved in like sort of the trophy debate, trophy hunting debate, kind of, and it's a vast and complex issue, but simplified very often down to it's bad. I don't like it. You know, we should just shoot the people that do it because it's da 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 da. And like, I don't know how you then get to the point where those folks would be up for an actual conversation. That's I think they're like idea. so far gone down a particular road. And it's the same as like, you know, anti-vaxxers or whoever else. It's, it's kind of, there's these wormholes of information and disinformation. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is to result. Uh, I, I think this is what you said, what you said earlier, that this is becoming part of an identity. Totally. And when something becomes part of your identity, that's done. That's, you know, that person is done with conversation because then, you know, they're not going to change their mind on something if that something is their very identity. It's, it's really hard. It's, 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 it's it's really hard. I don't, I don't know the good answers to that as as well, you know. No, but it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a massive kind of, um, I think just in terms of like sensible discussion on land use and like land management or, Lack, lack of land management if that's what you're into um you know to have those actual sensible discussions and like i said you know about the your management side of things the collaboration and perhaps a little bit of like the dirty word compromise um <laughs> to try and get to that point when folks are then very entrenched i don't know it's yeah i don't know what the answer is i think you know like the more the conversations like this happening yeah definitely you know um Maybe like one or two people who listen to that will say like, oh, yeah, actually. Well, that's why I've been always quite like vocal and kind of made an effort to talk about deer management. Because I think like even when I started, it it was kind of a mystery. You know, you kind of, there was some stuff, but it was still kind of quite a, almost like a dark art that happened, you know, and it was kind of. I've always been very much like the more people that know about this stuff, the better. And the more people, you know, are aware of the hows and the whys, the better. And if it's, you know, regardless of whether it's me or somebody else speaking about it, you know, it's got to be a good thing as long as it's matter of fact, kind of, we do X because of Y, and this is how we do it. Um, And it's just tackling some of that kind of disinformation that fills the void for lack of information. (laughs) You know, if, if, if people don't have a a clear picture of what's happened, they'll make their own narrative up. So you've got to provide them with a good a good clear you know understanding of of everything so yeah i don't i think that's probably the only way you can do it and hope that enough of that kind of percolates through to sensible folks <laughs> yeah yeah and you know there's there's also uh aspect of it you know how 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 many of of shouting people really matter you know like i did you know because at the end of the day things are happening on the ground totally that's 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 where the change is made. So, um, it, 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 it's a question, you know, how mu- how many of those people who are on the ground and doing stuff are worried or impacted by the shouting ones? I think the thing is, you've got a relatively. It's, it's like, and I'm sure it's true of pretty much everything. You've got like quite a vocal minority at either end of a spectrum of people, and a lot of folks haver around in the middle, you know, and they'll move one way or the other depending on whatever the mood takes them basically. But I think you, you will have, like you said, that those identity kind of positions 
where people have kind of whether they're whether they're right or wrong and anything about what they're talking about is another <laughs> altogether. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that's where they kind of sit. And then, like I said, most people kind of sit somewhere in between the two. And I think that's as long as you're providing, you're never going to change the minds of folks sitting at either end of the spectrum. You've got to like ch- talk to people in the middle who aren't quite as vocal. I think that's going to be the only way you can do it. And like I said, stuff like this helps, and you know. Um, giving people a chance to have questions answered is, you know, quite a good thing. <laughs> Listen, um, how do you how do you think the the the, the, the future of uh, deer in Scotland will un- unfold? How do you how do you see you know from the perspective of trends, mm. you know how the situation looked like where you when you started, how it looks like now, and you know where the trajectory goes, whether the the you know. Uh, rewilding movement or however you want to call it will impact that and if if so in what way so you know how how do you how do you see the situation changed in you know 10 20 years from now (laughs) that's a that's a tricky one um that's kind of very much like future casting (laughs) no but Um, i mean like based on the trends that you see yeah no i mean i i think it could go it could go in a number of ways, really. I mean, the the like. I think one of the things is the, for me, and this is just like stuff we've talked about, you know, through just personal and work. Is like the actual cost it would achieve that it would the actual financial cost of achieving what a lot of people are discussing in terms of like population reduction of deer and maintenance of that reduction because it's all very well to like you know shoot them at once. That's fine but they will come back. They breed every year. <laughs> All the ones that are left don't stop reproducing. So it's kind yeah, of... 30%, right? Um, depends on the environment because, I mean, in some areas, like say in the uplands, in a bad year, it might be 20%. In your lowlands and agricultural areas where they've got access to year-round winter grazing, um, 80% recruitment's not unusual. You're kidding me. Genuinely. 80%. I had a, I've got a friend who stalks down south and he has shot 250 fallow deer um, and this last winter and every single doe was pregnant. Bar one, I think he said. One old doe that didn't have offspring on the way. <laughs> so, you know, it, it very much varies depending on, and I think that's the thing with like, to be aware of is as we're, creating better habitat for deer which all these woodlands will do Mm -hmm. their well-being and welfare will improve as they have access to better feeding and better shelter so their fecundity and their reproduction will increase (laughs) so there's all these kind of little variables and things that i think are going to make for a very interesting time i don't think i could say like what they'll do um sort of population wise but i think as well like it's it's not easy managing deer on the open hill but it's a damn sight easier managing deer on the open hill than it is in a wild woodland yes or even a a, a grazed woodland you know that's inter- that's interesting point because you, you you're saying essentially okay reduce the deer uh, plant the woodland and now your deer will explode again so like- got, you'll suddenly have perfect habitat for them to you know yeah. both reproduce and evade you yeah um, we were so, better yeah. off without, without all those damn trees. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Good hill fire, <laughs> that's what you need. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
don't record that. Um, oh, God, God. <laughs> no. Um, but, you know, so it's, yeah, I, I really don't know what the answer is in terms of what the future is going to be, but I think it's definitely going to be, there'll be some surprises, definitely, because like nothing in nature does what people want it to do. <laughs> nature hasn't read the human playbook. <laughs> she really doesn't give it. She really doesn't nature give it Nature will find a way. Absolutely. Life will find a way. Um, no, I don't know. I, I think you could end up with populations in the uplands being probably reduced further, but populations in the lowlands just doing their thing, rocketing away. Right. Or, or lowlands or kind of upland areas that have been planted. But that, you know, we just get some wolves. That'll sort it out. Yeah, they sort it out. Some wolves and, and wild cats. A couple of links and, you know, yeah. maybe a bear or two. That'd be yeah, good. I would love to. I, bear is like by far my, my favorite. Um, apparently, there's less conflict with bear than, than with wolves. Yeah, anyway. I could believe it to a certain extent. But yeah, yeah. because oh, they're, not like, they're not like 100% carnivores, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, like a bear can go into cow mode and just eat grass and stuff. and Berries and things. Berries they're and pretty things. cool. Listen, cool. one last thing. <laughs> you know, uh, do you see do you see any any impact on deer, um, both on deer deer biology, deer behavior, but also on the uh, when it comes to stalking deer with the with the you know climate change and like this is do you see any impacts on, on you know like a drier summer? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like we've had a couple of springs that have been dry, and that definitely checks. Um, their body condition because because you don't get that initial burst of vegetation so you know they don't get the hinds with that final push in the pregnancy um, the final kind of period of pregnancy they're just it's that much pre more pressure on them if they don't get good grazing in the spring and early summer so that's definitely had an impact on both them and you know the success of their calves because if you know they're not getting good grazing or they're in a drought in the summer um you know, obviously it can't produce as much milk. So it's that definitely has a, a knock on impact. Um and then, you know, wetter wetter, more miserable winters, you know. We don't get sort of like cold, dry, snowy winter anymore. You know, it's mm -hmm. very often like Yes. We had that what year was it? Was it the Beast from the East year? Two I mean we ago? had yeah, a few it was a few years ago. We had like seventy days of rain non stop. It rained every day for seventy days. He's a guy with a weather station on the road, you know, so he's kind of, <laughs> kind of looking at it going, Jesus. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that's that side of the thing. And, and that sort of weather drags animals down. You know, if they can't dry their backs and they, 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 they're just using up all their energy just to stay warm. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it definitely has an effect. But again, like I said, get some more woodlands in. Resolve that yeah, issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. simple solution. Listen, Megan, just one, one, one more thing that, that now when you were talking about the Heinz and all that, which, which is again controversial one, but we're here to just tackle all the controversial subjects. Yeah, let's go for you, it. You, you got all your disclaimers before that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I heard a lot of uh, uh, complaints really uh, from stalkers, from, from, from deer managers about. Yeah. Now I'm going to butcher that, so you can correct me on that. But uh, about extending sh hind shooting season into February and March, yeah. And then the the argument was on that the they're they're heavy pregnant and that this is uh, inhumane and this is you know sickening for 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 hunters and so on. Yeah. Uh, I heard also another another uh, uh, view on this also from deer manager that you know like whatever you you shoot the hind you know whether 
you shoot that hind in December or January or in March, yeah. it's equally pregnant. So yeah. like, you know, there's no, um, at, at least no ethical considerations. So yeah. I, I wonder again, like as a, as a someone who is like very deep and close mm. and this is your day to day, what are your views on this? I think the main thing about, I, mean, I don't like it. I don't think it's, it's particularly nice. Um, like shooting heavily pregnant hinds, it, but that is definitely it is more of a human discomfort thing at that point. I mean, you know, you, you shoot the hind, the calf dies. You know, it's it's re- until it is born, it is reliant on its mother. You know, or, unless you're catching it in the very like last few hours before it's born. Um, so it's kind of distasteful, but like you say, it's it's pregnant at one point, it's pregnant at the next. It's kind of you know, <laughs> um, you're still, you know, it's still get shooting two for one kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. All right, yeah. It's probably more of an issue shooting hinds, you know, starting the season earlier in the year. So, you know, normally we start um, October, October 21st, um, after the stags finish. Starting earlier than that, then you have got the risk of like orphaning and leaving highly dependent young. And I think that's probably more of an issue than shooting hinds later into the year when they're heavily pregnant so you know um because i mean you know so much of a deer's life and well-being is dependent on its mother i don't like folks like are aware of how much because i mean they're you know they're a matriarchal herd especially looking at a hind group so it may be a lot of you know mothers sisters aunties half sisters whatever and a hind uh, a calf whether it's a male or a female is very much dependent on its mum's place in that family group for where he gets grazing or where she gets how often she gets fed or whatever um so yeah it's uh if you yeah i've got more of an issue with probably orphaning or orphaning kind of more dependent calves than i do with shooting heavily pregnant females no for sure now when you said it that's for sure all right listen megan thank you thank you so much for that i was uh I, i learned a lot and and surely uh listeners and viewers learn a lot as well is, are there any uh, words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Be curious, be questioning, all that sort of stuff. How people can uh, can find you? Like you have a you have a fantastic blog website, and uh, like I said on the top of the show, you have a strong social media presence. Yeah. How people can uh, get in touch and uh, follow what you do? Yeah. So I'm, my website blog is Wayfaring and Wandering. Um, just Google that, and it should come up. Um, I don't update my blogs often as I used to, but there's the odd stuff goes on it. So maybe just whatever. This is a lot of stuff <laughs> there. I was, I was, I was browsing yeah. the other day. So a lot of interesting stuff on this. Yeah. Blog, so. Um, thank you. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm way at wary fairing hind. And then on Instagram, I can't remember what my username is actually. I think it's wayfaring underscore hind, but just right. search my name and it'll come up. <laughs> all of these underscores and things that, that you do at the beginning and then I was like what was it that <laughs> <laughs> don't worry totally don't get me started on passwords definitely definitely <laughs> recommend that uh, folks uh, uh, give Megan a follow and I'm going to put the links in the description of the show Megan thank you very much appreciate your time no problem thanks Tommy it's been good thank you for listening if you enjoy the podcast please leave me five star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 